Okay. So here we are uh, dealing with the, the, the Christmas carol, uh, which is not really Christmas carol, Joy to the World, written, as I said, by uh, Isaac Watts. Now, uh, he may not have written as many hymns as Charles Wesley. If you remember, I said Charles Wesley wrote somewhere between six and 9,000 hymns. Uh, Watts didn't say, uh, write quite as many, but he definitely made his mark on uh, the world of Christian hymns. Um, now this, as with many other hymns, it began not as a song to be sung, it began as a poem. Uh, and it was included in a collection of Watts' works, which I'm going to tell you the name of, which you might think, why is he telling us the name of the collection that this was written in? Well, it has uh, significance. It's written in a collection of Watts' works, which he titled Psalms, Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. Right? They loved those long titles back in the day. Now, Scott uh, Aniola, a current-day pastor and author, he says this about this volume. As the title indicates, Watts published this collection as his attempt to Christianize the Psalms so that Christians could sing them with the full revelation of Jesus Christ in view. So basically, he went back to the Psalms, he meditated on the Psalms, and then he applied them to Christ, which is what we ought to do as Christians. Now, uh, as for Joy to the World, it was a reflection on Psalm 98, and its original title was The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom, which means that instead of Matthew 1 or Luke 2 this morning, uh, we will spend some time in Psalm 98. And as we do, we will see that the theme of the psalm is the theme of Joy to the World, namely celebration. Now, uh, with that said, I trust that it will become clear that Watts' song was not originally written as a Christmas carol, though as we dig into it, I think we will see how it applies to what we celebrate at Christmas, that is the Incarnation. So, without further ado, uh, let's get into it uh, and consider um, joy to the world. Uh, The first thing I'm going to note about this carol, this hymn, uh, is that it actually was not originally about the first coming it was originally about the second coming, and I attempt to demonstrate that as we look at Psalm 98. So look at, uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 98, and uh, we're going to begin at the end, uh, because it is at the end of the psalm where a coming of Christ is mentioned, and it must then be this coming that is mentioned uh, in Joy to the World, where it says the Lord is come. So Psalm 98, and uh, verse 7 through 9 says this, let the sea roar, and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So verses seven and eight are summarized by Watts in the refrain of the first verse when we sing heaven and nature sings. Heaven and nature sings. And so you see here that he talks about in verse 7, the sea and all its contents. Um, uh, and, and it talks about the world and all its creatures. It talks about the rivers and the hills all singing for joy together. Right? Let heaven and nature sing. So he's speaking about all of creation praising God. But the question you ask is what is their praise for? Why are all creatures praising God? Why are the trees clapping their hands, so to speak. Of course, we all understand the trees are not really clapping their hands. This is, this is a, the psalmist's way of saying that all of the earth directs praise and glory to God. And why, you ask? For he comes to judge 
the earth to judge the world with righteousness. Now, you may remember, you probably don't, but I actually preached on Psalm 98. Uh, I forget when it was, but it was a few years ago. So I wanted to refresh my memory. So I went to um, three of my favorite commentaries on the Psalms. And because I've been preaching through the Psalms over the last years, I have all of the best commentaries on Psalms. And so I looked at at three of my favorites, and all of them uh, are certain that this coming is definitely a reference to the second coming in Psalm 98. So Jim Hamilton says this, Psalm 98 joins with its context to point forward to the final triumph of God, whereby truth, goodness, and beauty will be vindicated and to which all creation will respond with praise for the only creator and redeemer. Alan Ross, who is probably my one most favorite commentator on Psalms, says this, the call to praise the Lord is a call that is inspired by the hope of his coming when all of his creation, all people, and all of nature will respond spontaneously and enthusiastically to the sovereign Lord of all creation. For creation to flourish as God intended it to do will be a tribute to his power, and so it can be said that nature will sing and rejoice when God makes everything right. And then Alan Harmon, uh, he says, to judge involves deliverance for his people and destruction for his enemies. At the last great appearing of the Lord, he will deal with all in accordance with his righteousness and uprightness. So then the coming of Christ that Watts had in mind here most definitely had to be the second coming as when we affirm in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. Now, This is not to say that Jesus' first coming, uh, the incarnation, the birth of Christ, didn't have anything to do with judgment. And it most certainly doesn't mean that his second coming will have nothing to do with salvation. It, It is to say that his first coming was primarily to deal with salvation. This is when he went to the cross, when he accomplished redemption. Uh, and, And it is to say that the second coming is primarily about judgment. The author of Hebrews addresses it like this when he says, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, there's the first coming, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, at that point it's too late, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So it was the first coming when Jesus dealt with sin, and it is the second coming when God will raise up those who belong to him to enjoy the new heavens and the earth, and when he will judge the wicked Uh, And this is exactly what the Apostle John tells us about the second coming. He says that the second coming in righteousness, Jesus judges and makes war. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. You see, for there to truly be joy in this world, what must take place? Wickedness and sin must be eradicated. It must be put away with, which means that the judgment of the wicked must take place. And that will happen when Jesus comes to separate the good from the bad, the saved from the lost, the unbeliever from the believer, the sheep from the goats. Now, the goats uh, are those who reject Christ, those who live for themselves, and they are uh, ultimately sent away to eternal punishment. And the sheep are those who trust in Christ, who cling to Christ, who look to Christ for salvation, and thus receive the gift of eternal life. 
You can read more about this in Matthew 25 if you wish. So the second coming is about judgment. Because when Jesus returns, he will judge. And so when, when Watts spoke of the Lord's coming in his poem, it most certainly had to be the second coming in which he comes in judgment. Now, uh, this means, in fact, that for the enemies of God's people, the second coming of Christ is most certainly not good news. It is, it is bad news. But for God's people, it is great news, and it is a reason for rejoicing. And unlike with Jesus' first coming, if you recall, as I mentioned last week, it took place in the most humble uh, and most quiet circumstances, like all of the world would hardly have noticed. But with Jesus' second coming, it will be massive. It will be a vibrant display, and all will know when Jesus comes a second time. John tells us again, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, let me just uh, make a another case for why this carol is talking about the second coming. Just look uh, or listen at verse 3 of Joy to the World, and it will confirm it. In, in, in verse 3, Watts writes, and we sing, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Now, that's some good rhyming, but that wasn't why he wrote those lines. So, so, so think about the world that we live in today. I think that we can surely all agree that the effects of the curse remain in place today, don't they? Things are not right in this world as it stands. There are sinners who perpetuate evil deeds and, in fact, very evil deeds. Further, I think we can all agree that the effects of the curse are felt by us. We continue to suffer. People continue to get sick. We continue to struggle with temptation and sin. Sorrow still remains both because of sin and because we live in a fallen world. I think we must all agree that when we look around, when we consider what this world is like, we can hear the earth groaning. As Paul says, he says, the earth groans while it waits. And what is it waiting for? The earth is groaning as it waits for the return of Christ. That is when he will make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He will raise his people to everlasting life. And only then will there be no more sin and sorrow. Until then, there will be sin and sorrow. And that is when all his blessings will flow as far as the curse is found. So though we love to sing Watts' song when we celebrate Jesus' first coming, now we all know it's in fact about the second coming. And so when we sing it, when we sing it, while we will think back to his first coming, and as I will argue in a moment, we should. In fact, what we really should be doing, or what primarily we should be doing, is we should be looking forward to the second coming. When we sing the Lord has come, we should be meditating on what it will be like when sin and sorrow are all gone. When struggle is no more. When we will experience new life in the new creation. Now, uh, as I said, it's not directly about the first coming, but I am going to argue that it, 
it is in some way indirectly about the the first coming. So uh, if we look back at Psalm 98, we looked at how it ended, but look, look at how it begins. It begins, in fact, by speaking of none other than salvation. And what is salvation related to again? The first coming. So Psalm 98 verse 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So while the end of this psalm ensures that we understand God's judgment, the beginning of the the psalm ensures that we understand his, his mercy. Now, If we look to the Old Testament, we see that God is a God of mercy there. We see and learn about God's salvation. I know we always like to jump to the Gospels to think about salvation. But if we look to the Old Testament, we see many acts of God's deliverance of his people from their enemies. Starting, of course, with the Exodus. That's the the quintessential deliverance of God in the Old Testament. And then we see him delivering his people over and over again through the time of the Judges. And then we even see him delivering them through sending prophets to uh, the kings during the time of the monarchy. Now, you might ask in Psalm 98, which particular time of deliverance does the psalmist refer to? And the answer is, in fact, we don't know. And that might entirely be intentional. The psalmist might not have put details concerning which deliverance he was talking about. He could have very easily, right? He could have talked about the deliverance through the Red Sea. Right? He could have talked about the deliverance through the judges, but he doesn't. He just talks about God's salvation. And I think that's intentional so that the singer and, or the reader of the psalm would meditate on how God has delivered his people many, many times. In other words, I think that we should not just think on one occasion when God saved his people, but we should think on all of them, uh, which if you do that, Right? If you stop and think about all of the ways that God has delivered his people, right, all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, that's just going to remind you of God's mercy and his faithfulness. But, you know, it's also important to look back through the Old Testament at the ways that God delivered his people because, of course, all of those deliverances point forward to one deliverance. Right? All of those ways that God saved his people were, were mere shadows of the way that he would save his people through Christ's birth and death and resurrection. So if you think on Psalm 98, then you're thinking on God's first coming, Christ's first coming. You're thinking on the incarnation because all of those means of salvation are going to point forward to the salvation through Christ when he was born and lived a perfect life, and died a sacrificial death, and rose from the grave, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he reigns and rules over all now. He rules the world, where he intercedes for his own, and from where he will return for us. Yes, Jesus is coming again. But it is only because of Jesus' first coming that we can be excited about his second coming, right? It's only because of salvation and mercy that we need not fear judgment when Christ returns. It is because of the first coming then and the salvation that Jesus accomplished for us through it that we have hope in the second 
coming. So while thinking on the first coming of Christ should always move us to think on the second coming, right? You know how I do that every year, right? Every year, everybody remember, you know, we're going to think particularly about Jesus' first coming. But don't forget when you think about Jesus' first coming, you have to think about his second coming. But now, when we're looking at joy to the world, I have to do the opposite. So everybody, we're singing about joy to the world, and we're thinking about the second coming. But don't forget about the first coming. It's a bit of a reverse. So as we have considered the second coming, it's focused on judgment. We've considered the first coming, and it's focused on salvation. Now we're going to consider both of those comings and what they should result in, namely the topic of the psalm, the topic of the song written by Watts, and that is joy or celebration. Now, before we go back to Psalm 98, I, I first want to uh, speak briefly on a touchy subject. Uh, as you know, I'm not afraid to address such things. Um, and that is celebration of Christmas. Celebration of Christmas. There are, in fact, I, um, there are at least a few different opinions I want to say a lot. Twitter leads me to believe that there are a lot because there's lots of arguing at this time of year about how or if Christians should celebrate Christmas. Now, before you're too hard on Christians who choose not to celebrate Christmas, um, you should remember there is no command in Scripture that says we must celebrate the Incarnation in December. No command whatsoever. And what that means, ultimately, is that the celebration of Christmas is a matter of conscience. It is a matter of freedom. If you wish to go home today and get up tomorrow morning and have breakfast and go about your day exactly as you would any other Monday, you are free to do so. No, no judgment whatsoever. Not from me, anyway, and I don't think it should be from any, any of us. There is no command, no explicit command. So it, it, it is not required. That said, the incarnation, which is to say the miracle, the miracle that God took on flesh and became man is most definitely a fantastic, amazing excuse to celebrate. I know, I should have said reason, but I was feeling a little cheeky there, so I said excuse. As we discussed in detail last week, the reason it is a reason... Uh, the reason it is a reason, the re- just a minute, the reason, okay, I got to look here. The reason it is a reason for celebration, that doesn't sound right, but that's what I have written. The reason it is a reason for celebration, I don't know what I'm saying. The point is, is that we celebrate the incarnation because of reconciliation. That's what I was trying to say there with all those reasons. And that is something to celebrate, right? We have reason to celebrate. This is a good time to celebrate. Was Jesus born in December or not? Who knows? Who cares? Um, I care. But we don't know for sure. More than likely it wasn't. Uh, but but why not? Like, like, why not focus on the incarnation in December. Did I have to take a break from First Thessalonians? I didn't have to. Would some of you judge me if I had? Probably. <laughs> but hey, here we are. So, so uh, you know, I, I really want to encourage you uh, not to judge those who choose not to. Uh, but I also, uh, I, I truly believe, like, what a great reason to celebrate. See, just one reason there. What a great reason to celebrate. 
What is that? What is that kitschy scene? It's the reason for the season. No, I don't go for that sort of thing. Anyway, we celebrate uh, the incarnation, and it's a reason to celebrate because through the incarnation, Jesus came to reconcile sinners to God, and 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 thus we should celebrate. You know, and we see this clearly in the those few parables. Do you remember those parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep and and the the lost son, essentially the prodigal son? Uh, so you've got this shepherd who loses his sheep and he leaves the 99 to go and find the one sheep and he finds the sheep and the woman loses the coin, right? And she scours the house looking for the coin and she finds the coin. And what do both of those individuals do when they find the coin and the sheep? They call their friends and they say, come and rejoice together with me, which is exactly what the angels do when a sinner is saved. And then, I mean, the prodigal son, right? Which is really a parable more about the father than about the son. Um, but, you know, the son goes and he squanders his inheritance and he ends up in pig slop and he, and he comes back to his, his, his father. And what does his father do? He says, get the fattened calf, man. We are going to partay. Right? They celebrate. This clearly teaches us that when a person is born again, that is reason to celebrate the reconciliation of a person, even just one, right? But when we get together, we celebrate the reconciliation of every one of us. All of us are celebrating our salvation when we celebrate the incarnation. So we are right to celebrate our salvation, which is entirely wrapped up in the first coming, which means that the incarnation is something to be celebrated always and forever for the child of God. You know you're getting this. You got it once last week. You're getting it this week. December is good to celebrate the incarnation, but so is January through November, right? We ought to always celebrate the incarnation. We ought to all always celebrate Christmas, so to speak. And when we do celebrate Christmas, let me say this. We ought to not be out-celebrated, right? The world thinks they've got a, a finger on how to celebrate, right? All the lights, the blow-ups. What is with the blow-ups? They're so massive. They're, ah, I don't like the blow-ups. And then, and then during the day, they fall down and they look so pathetic, right? Just put up some nice lights and be done with it, right? Anyway. The, the world really does think they know how to celebrate, right? They, they do all, lots of the things that we do. We gather for dinner. We give presents, you know. Those are all fun things. Those are all good things. They get together. They have Christmas parties, and they dance, and they get drunk, and they sleep around with their... I mean, th this is how the world celebrates. The world doesn't know how to celebrate. We ought to be leading the charge when it comes to celebration. We ought to be the ones who know true celebration because... We don't celebrate a what, right? The world celebrates a what. We celebrate a who. We celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we do it through roast turkeys and gifts under the tree and, and all the other things we enjoy in December. But may what we truly celebrate, may the heart of our celebration, may the foundation of our celebration, may what drives our celebration be the Lord Jesus and the salvation that we receive through his incarnation. I mean, the world, they experience a measure of joy, don't they? I mean, they do. They, there's things in this world that give them joy. Those are a result of God's, God's grace. 
but not his, his special grace. For some reason, the term has lost. His, please, somebody help me. His common grace, thank you. You know, my brain, it's kind of all over the place sometimes. His common grace, right? All people experience his grace in some way, and they all have something to, to celebrate. They celebrate birthdays. They celebrate Christmas. They have some joy, but it's only some joy. And I mean, the sad part is that that joy is going to come to an end. And a day will come when they will celebrate no more. There will be no more celebration. But we as the people of God, we experience a supernatural joy which transcends experience and will last for all of eternity. And that's a reason to celebrate. That is the reason to celebrate. Which brings us back to joy to the world, a hymn which points us forward to what is to come. The world does not know true joy right now, but they can see true joy in our lives if we have that true joy. And they should see that in the people of God, but they don't experience it. But one day, the entire world will be filled with joy. The entire world, something we see when we return once more to Psalm 98, where it begins by addressing salvation, ends, excuse me, by talking about judgment, the second coming. But in between those two refrains, listen to this. This is a a call to celebration unlike uh, any other. The psalmist says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Now, uh, in, in one way, when this says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, this is a call to every human being to worship God. Because every human being ought to worship God. Every human being will not worship God, but every human being ought to worship God. God is worthy to be worshipped by all. So all people should worship the Lord. They owe it to him, whether they are saved or not. That's a little controversial sounding, isn't it? Whether you're saved or not, you should worship the Lord. Even if you are to face all of eternity, receiving the wrath of God in hell, you still should worship God. We worship God because he saved us, but more foundationally, we worship God because he is worthy to be worshipped. All worship is due to him. So in one way, this is a call for all people to worship him. Um, I mean, I guess it's also a call to all people to truly worship him by trusting in Christ and receiving salvation and the power of the Holy Spirit to actually worship him. But once again, I think this points us forward to when all the earth will praise the Lord, and that would be Jesus' second coming. Like noted, that was its original purpose, to make us think of the second coming of Jesus. It's Yeah, I already said that. I won't say that again. Uh, We live right now um, in a period of history, which in in many ways is unlike any other period of history. The Bible talks about um, the the time we live in as the present age. This is the present age. Um, It started when Christ died and rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Um, But we live in anticipation of what the scripture calls the age to come. That's the age that there will be no end to. So what that is to say is we live between the first coming and the second coming. 
That's a pretty exciting time to live, between the first coming and the second coming. These are two events which are our reasons for celebration. So really, we, uh, more than all people, ought to be people of celebration. We should celebrate the incarnation. We should celebrate the first coming. But we should also celebrate the second coming, when Jesus will return to raise us from the dead, when he will recreate the heavens and the earth, and when he will rejoice with us, his people, for all of eternity. Because then, and only then, will joy truly come to the whole earth, as his blessing spread literally as far as the curse is found, which means at that point there will be no more effects of the curse. So sing joy to the world at Christmas time, and I guess sing joy to the world all year round, but whenever you sing joy to the world, I hope that you will be reminded that as God's redeemed people, we are to be a people who celebrate. This is the theme of this song and of the psalm. We are to be a joyful people. Now, uh, I do have to address um, the fact that this does not mean uh, we never mourn, right? Uh, a message on celebration, on calling us uh, to have joy, uh, must recognize that as God's people, we, we mourn, we, we grieve. Uh, things come out of left field and smack us in the face. You know, broken relationships and sickness. I mean, so many more things. It's In some ways, it's very hard to preach a message on, on joy when you are aware of so much hurt and pain and sorrow. Not in the world. I mean, in this room, in, in our hearts, in our lives. So it's not to say that we don't ever mourn, and it's not to say that we shouldn't mourn. We do mourn. The Bible tells us to mourn. It tells us to, to, to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Uh, it, it tells us when we lose a loved one that we are to grieve. We don't grieve like everyone else, but we grieve. We grieve and we mourn, and we should grieve and we should mourn, right? This is not to say we don't experience those things. Quite the opposite, really. What it does mean what I do want us to hear uh, this morning, especially if you are uh, going through a tough experience, if something is not right in your world, if you are struggling to celebrate right now, I, I want you to know that your joy in Christ transcends experience. Your joy in Christ transcends experience. Which is kind of weird to think about it because you can have joy in the midst of mourning, right? It's that, what do you, you call that a paradox or something like that? I think that's the word. It's like, it's like something that seems like this isn't right, but it is. We have joy in the midst of pain because our joy is in Christ. And if we are in union with Christ, that can never be taken away, which means our joy can never be taken away. Now, you will have to fight for joy at times, right? It's a fight for joy. Because we, uh, we become self-centered and we become inward-focused. Um, our circumstances kind of, um, you know, quash the, the joy that we have. So we will have to fight for joy. But there is a way to do that, right? To, by looking to the Incarnation by looking to our, our reconciliation, by considering the second coming 
of Christ. So we must be a people who focus on the incarnation, and we must be a people who focus on the resurrection and the second coming of Christ when he, we, when he will come back for his people. But, you know, if you are not one of his people today, uh, or you're, you don't even know, am I one of his people or not? Are you like, what, what is this guy talking about in the second coming of Christ? I, got, I was worried about having my presence wrapped on time, and now he's got me worried about the second coming of Christ. Well, praise the Lord for that. Who cares if the presents are wrapped? Who cares if the tree is up? Who cares if you have pecans for the top of your sweet potato pie casserole? Not mentioning any names. I mean, who cares if everything's not ready? You need to be ready. You need to be ready for the second coming of Christ. And there is one way to do that. And it's so easy. It is the easiest thing you can do. It is to stop trying to save yourself and trust in Christ. It's that simple. Come to Christ. He will receive you. He will give you the greatest gift that you can ever receive, salvation. And then you will have hope and joy in the second. You will have true hope and joy. You know, you've experienced joy in this world, as I said, but you don't know nothing yet. Those have just been sparks of temporal joy. You can have the joy that will never end. Joy unlike any other joy, but you must stop clinging to your sin. You must stop clinging to your own works to make you acceptable in the eyes of God, and you must come to Christ and trust in Christ. He will receive you. He will give you the gift of eternal life, and you will then be one of his people who can look forward to his return when he will come back for his people and when he will make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is 